Now we come to the book of Joel. Joel ministered to Judah sometime after 515 B.C. We already talked about the fact that some scholars believe that he's a pre-exilic prophet, largely because he's located with the pre-exilic prophets in the table of contents of the Bible. However, the book of Joel does not foretell the coming of the Assyrians or Babylonians or the coming exile in any kind of a way. Even if he left out the Assyrians and Babylonians, it would be very unlikely that he would have not talked about the coming exile because all the pre-exilic prophets talked about that. In Joel chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Yahweh condemns the nations for scattering his people and dividing up their land and selling their children to slavery, which could only refer to the exile that has already happened. The only time that Israel was ever scattered by the surrounding nations and all their stuff was divvied up was the exile. So the fact that he describes it as already happening points to the fact that the exile already has happened and he's a post-exilic prophet. It's not very clear when the book was written, but it seems that it has, it's most likely that it happened after 515 BC because there are passages that refer to the temple. Joel chapter 1 verse 14, verse 16, and chapter 2 verse 17. Therefore the temple has been built. So this is post-exile, post-temple. Other than that, we don't really know when it was written in any kind of way. The main idea of the book of Joel is that he is calling the Jews to repentance and warning them about the coming day of Yahweh, which would both defeat evil and renew the remnant. So he is basically calling Israel to repentance so that they are on the good side of the day of Yahweh, not the bad side. Now remember the day of Yahweh was that day back in Exodus where God drastically and dynamically and very powerfully showed up in Israel's life and he devastated those who were enslaving and oppressing Israel, Egypt, conquering them and then delivering his people. And so the day of Yahweh is both a horrific day of judgment if you're the wicked and an incredible day of deliverance if you're the righteous. And so what God is calling, what Joel is calling them to is saying, the day of Yahweh is coming. Because the day of Yahweh is any day that's like that. So the day of Yahweh is when the Assyrians came. The day of Yahweh is when the Babylonians came. And he talks about other day of Yahweh's. And then there's going to be an ultimate day of Yahweh in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is the day of Yahweh is coming. A day of Yahweh is coming. The day of Yahweh is coming. However you want to look at it, do you really want to be on the side where you're being destroyed like Egypt? So repent now before that day comes so that you can be on the side of deliverance. So that's the idea. The book is arranged into two major divisions. Joel chapter 1 through 2.17 and then 2.18 through 3.21. First division which is the first chapter and half of this book. Joel urged the people to mourn over the devastation of a locust plague. We don't have any historical record of this locust plague, but somewhere in Israel's history, there was a locust plague after the temple. There was a locust plague that was so devastating that it wiped so many of their crops out that it brought them into an economic collapse and starvation and all that kind of stuff. And Joel is saying that you are to mourn of that. And that should call you to repentance because another locust plague is about ready to come if you do not repent. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is Yahweh's message. 
that was given to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Listen to this, you elders. Pay attention, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your whole life, the locust play, or in the lifetime of your ancestors? Tell your children about it. Have your children tell their children and their children the following generation. So this locust plague was so devastating that there was no record in Israelite history anywhere of anything this big, this devastating. When Gazam locusts left the Arab locusts consumed, when the Arab locusts left the Yilk locusts consumed, and when the Yilk locusts left the Hazil locusts consumed. Now, not all your translations have those different words, but basically these are different words for locusts. Locusts were so prominent in the ancient world that there were actually different Hebrew words for different types of locusts in this sense. And that just shows you how like common and how numerous locusts are throughout the ancient world that you would actually have four different Hebrew words to describe locusts. Some people have said, oh, this must be some kind of scientific classification of a certain, certain kind of locust. Not likely. Most likely he's using these locusts in a synonymous kind of a sense. And what he's doing is he's not emphasizing the, the classification of what type of locust came through, but that there were four different waves of locusts coming through. Normally you would get one wave of locusts and it would all be over with. But the fact that there was a wave of locusts and another wave and another wave and another wave is what made this so devastating. And every time the people thought like, oh my gosh, this is over with, it came again. Then in verse 5, he gets really sarcastic. And he says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers, because the sweet wine has been taken away from you. So the sarcasm is like, hey, wake up, you drunkards, and start being really sad because you just lost all your alcohol supply when the locusts wiped out your vineyards. And basically the idea is all you poor drunkards, you can't get drunk and sin against God anymore because of the plague. What are you going to do? And it's a sarcastic way of saying, look how foolish this is. The thing that you've invested your life in, the thing that you've pursued is now gone so quickly. Yet Yahweh is here. The very one that you should have been pursuing, the very one you should have been worshiping, is still here even after the locust plague. Because locusts or moth or rust or spoil cannot affect Yahweh or the blessings that he has for you. For the nation has invaded our land, and there are so many of them, they are too numerous to count. The teeth are like those of a lion, and they tear apart their prey like lionesses, and they have destroyed our vines, and they have turned our fig trees into mere splinters, and they have completely stripped off the bark and thrown them aside, and the twigs are stripped bare. Then he describes the locusts with the capacity and the fierceness of a lion, the teeth of a lion just stripping everything bare. And he actually metaphorically refers to it as an army, because it is an army, so to speak. It is systematically coming in and stripping the land of all of its resources, which is going to lead to the starvation of the people in Israel. And so he uses metaphors of the lion in order to refer to how complete, how devastating that it devours everything that is in its way. 
Verse 8, Wail like a young virgin clothed in sackcloth, lamenting the death of her husband-to-be. No one brings grain offering or drink offerings to the temple of Yahweh anymore. So the priests, those who serve Yahweh, are in mourning, and the crops of the fields have been destroyed, and the ground is in mourning because the grain has perished, and the fresh wine has dried up, and the olive oil languishes. So now he calls the priests to mourn. He tells Israel to mourn like a virgin who's lost her husband. And the idea is she just experienced the greatest day of her life by being, or one of the greatest days of your life, depending on who you are and how you look at it, by marrying her husband. And before she can even be with him and then have children, he dies. That's incredibly depressing. One of the most depressing things that can happen to you in a dream, hopes, building of life kind of a sense. God says, mourn like that. Mourn like that. Because, sarcastically, you no longer have the thing that has led you astray and that you've made a God instead. But, seriously speaking, you have no sacrifices to offer God now. You have no grain sacrifices. You have no wine offerings in order to offer Yahweh. So you can't even worship Him in any kind of a way. Because you have sinned and rebelled and walked away from God so much, He has sent a plague that has not only stripped you of your devotion to your gods, but it's also stripped you of your ability to turn back to Yahweh in sacrifices. Verse 11. Be distressed, farmers, wail, vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley. For the harvest of the field has perished. The wine is dried up. The fig tree languishes. The pomegranate date apple as well. In fact, all the trees of all the field have dried up. Indeed, the joy of the people has dried up. Now what's interesting is all these things that he mentions, the wine, the grain, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the date tree, these are all been used as symbols of Israel. Except for the apple tree. We've never really seen that one. But the ones that he focuses on have been symbols that have been used of Israel as a national symbol or a metaphorical way of describing Israel in some kind of a way. And they're used to describe the blessings of God for Israel. Now that the people are mourning, the wicked people are mourning, and the people are mourning, now he turns to the priests and tells them to mourn. Verse 13, Get dressed and lament, you priests. Well, you minister at, who minister at the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you servants of my God, because no one brings grain offerings or drink offerings to the temple of your God anymore. Announce a holy fast, proclaim a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the temple of Yahweh your God to cry out to Yahweh. So you are to mourn priests because no one's bringing sacrifice to the temple, which affects the priests in two major ways. One, if nobody's bringing sacrifices, they're not getting paid with a tithe, which means their family's starving as well as everybody else's. And two, they can't do their job, which is atoning for people's sins. And so now they have no livelihood and they have no purpose as a result of this. How awful the day will be, for that day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction of the divine destroyer. So now he begins to metaphorically point to the fact that another day is coming that's like this but will be even greater. Our food has been cut off right before our eyes. There is no longer any joy or gladness in the temple of our God. The grains of the seed have shriveled beneath their shovels. Storehouses have been decimated, and granaries have been torn down, for the grain has dried up. Listen to the cattle groan. The herds of the livestock wander around in confusion, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of the sheep are suffering. To you, O Yahweh, call out for help. 
for fire has burned up the grassy pastures. Flames have raised all the trees in the fields, and even the wild animals cry out to you. For the riverbeds have dried up, fires destroy the grassy pastures. He describes the famine that has followed as a fire, because that's what's happened. It's as if the fields have all been burned up. And once there's no more crops and trees and any of that kind of stuff, then things get a whole lot hotter. You have that picture when there's no vegetation or trees anywhere, we picture a desert because there is nothing bringing coolness or shade in any kind of a way. And so then there's a sense of fire, which then could create literal fires because if it gets hot enough and dry enough, then things can actually spontaneously burst into flames, which is known to happen in different parts of the ancient Near East and this region. And so this is the morning. This is literal. There was literally a plague of locusts that devastated them so much that brought them to total economic collapse that they are literally starving. Their animals are dying. They're starving. The entire nation's affected, which means there's nowhere to turn for help because everybody is devastated as a result of that. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm signal on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land shake with fear. For the day of Yahweh is about to come. Indeed, it is near. So now Yahweh takes the role of a watchman. A watchman who stands in the tower and looks out for an enemy invading. And when they see it, they cry out the shout, the alarm to all the cities so the city can get ready to protect itself. And so Yahweh says, Ah, behold, in the distance, I see the day of Yahweh coming. The day of Yahweh to bring judgment. This was just a locust plague that God used as judgment. But now the day of Yahweh is actually coming. Verse 2, It will be a day of dreadful darkness, a day of foreboding, storm clouds like blackness, spread over the mountains. It is huge and powerful army. There has never been anything like it ever before, and there will be nothing like it in many generations to come. Like the fire they devour everything in their path. A flame blazes behind them. The land looks like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them there are only desolate wilderness, for nothing escapes them. They look like horses. They charge ahead like war horses. They sound like chariots rumbling over the mountaintops, like the crackling of blazing fire consuming stubble, like the noise of a mighty army being drawn for battle. So now he describes the day of Yahweh as his great army that's coming and devastating. There's a Garden of Eden wherever you look, but then this army comes in and it devastates you so much that when you look behind you after they've wake on through, there's nothing but death and devastation and barrenness. People, verse 6, will writhe in fear when they see them. All their faces turn pale with fright. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. Each one proceeds on his course. They do not alter their path. They do not judge. They do not jostle one another. Each of them marches straight ahead. They burst through the city defenses and do not break ranks. They rush into the city. They scale its walls. They climb unto the houses. They go in through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The sky reverberates. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars refuse to shine. The voice of Yahweh thunders as he leads his army. Indeed, his warriors are innumerable. Surely the command is carried out. Yes, the day of Yahweh is awesome and very terrifying. Who can survive it? Now he describes this enemy coming in. They are so focused, so determined that they cannot be jostled or deterred in any kind of a way. They know their mission and they're here to destroy. 
But not only is this army coming in in a devastating way, but Yahweh's with them. Yahweh is portrayed as their general. Now remember in the pre-exilic prophets, Yahweh constantly describes himself as a storm, a storm cloud, a whirlwind who's coming to bring judgment. And every single time Yahweh shows up in the storm cloud, it's always judgment day. And so he describes himself as sending this army out before him, and he's riding the chariot cloud or the storm cloud, and as their general, leading them into destruction into Jerusalem. Most likely, he's not talking about a literal blacking out of the sun, but that the sun gets blacked out by the fact that the storm clouds have filled the sky and there's no more sunlight in any kind of a way. And so it's not the literal going out of the sun, the literal going out of the stars, but they've been blocked out with the judgment of God, and God's judgment is bringing darkness and despair. And not only can you not see the sun and the stars because of the storm clouds, which is a very common thing that he uses to defeat enemies, literally, and is metaphorical of his judgment day. But you probably also can't see them as well, because even if they were out and the sun was shining, for you it would be such a gloomy, darkened day that you wouldn't think, oh, this is a bright, shiny, blue sky day. All you're thinking about is everything is dead. And for you, the light has gone out. Now the question is, what army is he talking about? The entire time he's been talking about locusts. He has switched to a military. Are the locusts going to come again? And God is going to use this locust plague in order to wipe them out. But he describes them in military metaphors to, to explain how this isn't just a natural phenomenon, but God is actually using them against them in judgment like he would use the military, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Or did the locusts, was a literal real thing that then has merged into a metaphor for the army. So it's one or the other. The army is being used as a metaphor to describe a very real locust plague as a not natural thing. It's God driving this locust. Or the locusts that were real have now become a metaphor for a very real army that is coming along. You can go either way. So the question is, what will that be? Some say it's another locust plague, far greater than the previous one. And it's the darkening of the sky. So this is seen by the fact that the locusts are so thick that they've blacked out the sky. So it's not Yahweh's storm clouds coming, but it's the locusts blacking out the sky, which is possible. It's, it is possible. And they're devouring the vegetation. The fact that it's compared to a human army, they're like a human army, suggests that this is not a human army. Because most of the time, the word like is used as a simile to compare two things that are not alike each other. Now that's true of English, and that's true of Greek. But that's not always true of Hebrew. So these are the arguments that they explain. That's Joel chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and then verse 7. Also, it is never said to have killed anyone. Nowhere does God describe anybody being killed. And locusts just devastate crops and don't kill people. So these are the three major arguments that people use to say that this is just another locust plague that is coming, like the first literal locust plague, but it's metaphorically being described as an army because God is intentionally directing the path of this locust like he directed the path of a very real army, the Assyrians and Babylonians. Others say that this is a human army that they're devastating the land like the locusts devastated. They are said to come from the north. 
So the argument they say is that the locusts come from the north. Locusts never come from the north and the ancient Near East. Locusts always come from the south or the southwest. They never come from the north because they're coming up from Egypt. And that seems to be the most later origins. They don't come down from Mesopotamia because Mesopotamia has a completely different um, um, geographical um, structure for, that the locusts don't thrive in or hatch in. The armies that God uses to destroy people always come from the north. They always come from the north. Egypt was never used. Egypt was in the First Testament, and they came out of Egypt through an exodus. But every single time that God judged Israel, the armies either came from the east, Midian, Moab, and Ammon, or something like that. But in the major devastating ones, they always came from the north, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then eventually um, other ones. They never come from the north. The locusts don't. Armies do. Yes, it says that they are like a human army in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and then verse 7. But the Hebrew doesn't always function that way. The Hebrew simile sometimes points to the reality underlying the metaphor. So sometimes, this is so interesting, you can sometimes use a simile to point to the reality that it really is this. So then in this sense, the simile is being used as a metaphor, but you're pointing out that the metaphor is actually literally real, which I know like is really going to drive you English people nuts. But this is the way that the Hebrew works here. So thus the simile like would carry the idea of in every way and respect like. So rather than saying it's kind of like a human army, it's saying in every respect and every way that a human army is a human army, so is this. So it's a way of saying it is a human army. You just got to love grammar, metaphors, and figures of speech. But that's true of every language where it's like, what? Couldn't they just say it another way? But that's the idea here. So for example, in Joel chapter 1, here's an example where simile is being used to point to the reality under it that every scholar agrees that that's true. In Joel chapter 1, verse 15, we read this already, that the day of Yahweh is said to come like destruction from the Almighty, meaning that it would be in every respect like the destruction from Yahweh. The day of Yahweh is described as being like the destruction of Yahweh. But we know that that's literally true because the day of Yahweh is the destruction of Yahweh. It always is, literally, all the time. So in that sense, it's saying in every respect, destruction is the day of Yahweh. So you can then say in every respect, this army is a human army. In every way, it is a human army. And so it could be used that way. Most likely, this is a human army. Because, yes, you could argue, well, yeah, there's this idea of no one getting killed, but you don't have to really talk about people killed in order to talk about an army. And that could be implied. But the powerful argument here is that they're coming from the north. And that's the thing. God doesn't usually violate the laws of nature. He might supersize it, like in the Ten Plagues, he might speed it up, like in the healing of people and raising people from the dead. But he doesn't usually defy the laws of physics completely. He usually works with it and speeds it up or supersizes it in some kind of a way. 